0: In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Seerah Intensive two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa wa ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi the prophetic biography. Previously, we were talking about the beginning of the fourth year of hijrah which is the fourth year of the Prophet sallallahu residence in the city of Medina. Now, to kind of provide a little bit of context exactly what we're talking about uh, but not to go over uh, everything in detail this is basically the period of post Uhud so in the second year of Hijrah of course you had the very famous Battle of Badr and in the towards the end of the third year of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi stay in the city of Medina you had the Battle of Uhud now the Battle of Uhud was a very major event uh, it was very traumatic both on the Muslim side and on the Meccan side And a lot of these events that are transpiring now are, you can look at them as a consequence of the Battle of Uhud and the aftermath of the Battle of Uhud. Now, previously we discussed the issue that the Prophet there were uh, expeditions that were sent by the Prophet there was the tragedy which we discussed previously of Bir Ma'una, in which someone came under the guise of wanting to take teachers to their people in order for them to possibly accept Islam and learn about the deen and the religion. And very tragically, they stopped on the way there and there was a massacre that occurred in about 70 Sahaba who were Students of the Prophet. ﷺ. They were not, you know, all Sahaba were students of the Prophet, ﷺ, but these were individuals that were dedicated to learning the deen and the religion. They were full time students of knowledge. And they were very brutally massacred at that place of Birma'una. One of the individuals who was able to escape that tragedy, Amr bin Umayyah, Al damri on the way back to the city of Medina. What ended up happening was, we talked about this previously, obviously you can imagine seeing, you know, 67 or 68 of your companions, your comrades, your brothers, um, being massacred brutally, um, and, and, you know, seeing their dead bodies uh, left out there tragically. He was very traumatized, he was very shaken up and kind of on edge. His nerves were very, very on edge. He came across a couple of individuals and he you know, kind of interacted with them and he found out that they belonged to the tribe of the individual who had recruited these Sahaba and taken them to begin with. Even though that man's tribe was not a part of this, what we call Ghadar, this deception, but nevertheless he himself acted of his own accord individually, his tribe did not cooperate with him, but you can still imagine that the Sahabi hearing that they belong to that tribe, He immediately, you know, was was shaken up by that. He went on the offensive and he waited till these two individuals lied down, kind of got off their guard because they were stopped where people would stop while traveling. And then he killed both of them before he thought that they would try to kill him or capture him. When he arrives back in the city of Medina, he informs about what basically happened. And the Prophet at that time ...tells him that the people, the tribe, they are not our enemy. They did not do this. In fact, we have an alliance and a peace treaty with them. And so the Prophet said, no worries, no concern. I understand the circumstances that you were in. You had just seen you know, nearly 70 of your brothers get massacred um, terribly... And so I understand your own personal circumstance, however, we will be fair, and we will compensate these individuals, and we will pay basically the retribution for these individuals to their family and to their tribe, the, what's called the dia, the blood money, the retribution. Now this is where an in, a very interesting incident occurs that is mentioned within the Qur'an very prominently. There was a tribe of, you know, before we talked about earlier in the sessions where we talked about the Prophet arriving in Medina, that there were some very key strategic Jewish tribes that lived in and around Medina. You have Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, Banu Qurayza. These were the major Jewish tribes that lived in and around the city of Medina. One of those tribes that lived right outside, The city of Medina would now would be pretty much inside the boundaries of the modern day Medina, but at that time it was right outside of the old Medina. Was Banu Nadir, and so the Prophet ﷺ had a pact and a treaty with Banu Nadir, and the pact and the treaty was that if an accidental killing or an accidental death occurs, and the retribution. Right, the, the, the blood money has to be paid to those individuals, then you will help us in the paying of that blood money. That, and similarly, if you face a similar circumstance, then we will also aid and help you. So that agreement was in place. That if you find yourself in this type of a difficult position financially, we will aid you. And if we find ourselves in such a difficult position financially, you will aid us. We are partners. Just like we will share the benefits of our partnership, we will share the losses of our partnership. And this, by the way, was not an unreasonable term in their agreement. This was standard operating procedure of hilf and of the treaty that would would exist between different tribes. So this was very standard operating procedure. So the Prophet ﷺ reached out to the people of Banu Nadir. And he said that, you know, we have such and such situation, and two of the individuals of Banu Kilab were accidentally, mistakenly killed by one of our people. And we now find ourselves in a very difficult financial position where we have to pay the two families, right? The typical amount was like a hundred camels per person. So it's a very exuberant amount, it was a very large amount, which is only fair. But because of our peace treaty, if the roles would have been reversed, we'd be willing to help. So I expect you to also play your part and play your role and aid us in paying this amount. They said, well, they were a little hesitant, they were a little reluctant, and they said, why don't we talk about this? So the Prophet said, absolutely. Now. I want to present all the facts of this situation so that you can get a proper picture. Because a lot of times the, you know, the, the European and Orientalist reading and telling of the Seerah of the Prophet talks about it like, one day the Prophet and the Sahaba just went out to Banu Nadid, laid siege to them, burned the place to the ground, and kicked them all out of town, and that was the end of that. So I want you to understand the circumstances. So you understand there is a treaty, and they have to comply with the terms of the treaty. Now, when they say, you know, they're a little reluctant, a little hesitant, and so the Prophet, uh, they tell the Prophet, why don't we talk about this? The Prophet says, absolutely. And the Prophet displays the humility where him, Abu Bakr, Umar, Ali, radiallahu ta'ala, anhum, the Kibar al Sahaba, the major companions, a whole group of them, accompany the Prophet, they go outside of Medina to Banu Nadih to their neighborhood, and they go and visit them there. They come and see them and say that we are here because you express some reluctance. And so we came to you to try to, you know, settle this issue and to, you know, satisfy any curiosity or any questions you might have. So the Prophet ﷺ displays his humility and they go and they sit down in their neighborhood in in an area and where they sit down, they basically sit down uh, leaning against a wall because it's like the afternoon time so the wall is casting a shade so they sit down in that shade leaning against a wall It's at that particular time that some of them they basically say that إِنَّكُمْ لَن تَجِدُوا الرَّجُلْ عَلَىٰ حَالِهِ هَذِهِ Rajulun يَعْلُو عَلَى هَذَا الْبَيْتِ فَيُلْقِيَ عَلَيْهِ سَخْرَةً مِنْهُ They say that you are not going to find this man in this type of a situation again. That's a literal translation. What that means more so like in our language is this is the perfect opportunity. You are not going to get another chance like this. He's in our neighborhood sitting with his back against a wall unsuspecting, he thinks of us as allies, so they're not armed, they're not alert, they're not expecting anything. So they, a group of them get together and they say, who is willing to go climb up onto this house, the wall of which he's leaning against, and take a big rock and drop it on his head and kill him, assassinate him so that we don't have to deal with this issue anymore. ibn Jahash <laughs> Ibn Ka'b One of the individuals, Amr bin Jahash, he volunteers, he says, انا لِذَلِكَ I'll take care of it. فَسَاعِدَ عَلَيْهِ سَخْرَةً So he gets a big old rock, some narrations mention that he got like the millstone, the big stone that they would use to kind of grind out flour and things like that. So it's quite heavy, you can imagine that. He takes that, he climbs up on top of the house to basically drop the rock onto the Prophet ﷺ وَلَعَيَاذُ Billah Try to assassinate him, kill him. رَسُولَ اللَّهِ, صلى الله عليه وسلم الْخَبْرُ مِنَ بِمَا الْقَوْمِ And right at the moment Jibreel comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, you have to leave right now. You have to leave right now because this is what they're planning to do. فَقَامَ وخرج in the middle of the gathering, as they're still waiting for the the leaders of Banu Nadir to come and sit down with them and have the talks, right? They're still sitting there waiting. But of course, where are they? They're out behind the house trying to figure out who's gonna climb on top and drop this rock on top of the Prophet ﷺ. And this news comes to the Prophet ﷺ. He just gets up and he just walks. Just quietly, without saying anything, immediately Gets up and he just starts walking. The Sahaba, عنهم, Abu Bakr, Umar, Ali, عنهم, and some of the others, صحابه, they sit there for a little while, like just, you know, again, maybe the Prophet had something to take care of, maybe he had to relieve himself, maybe he had to go take care of something. They sit there quietly, right? After some time goes by, they become kind of curious. So they get up to go look for him. They said, we should go look where he is. Rajulan رَجُلًا مُقْبِلًا مِنَ They see a man coming from the direction of Medina عَنْهُ They ask the man Have you seen the Prophet And he says رَأَيْتُهُ al-Madina. I saw him just enter into the city of Medina So the sahaba, they go to the Prophet They catch up with him in Medina And the Prophet informs them of the plan that they had Now it is at this particular time that the Prophet gets together with the Sahaba and you know they discuss basically what has just happened and transpired. These people that are supposed to be our allies, who are supposed to be helping us in this case per the terms of our agreement and treaty, right? In fact, forget about helping us out, they turned around and tried to assassinate the Prophet and so they, they think about what to do also there is a directive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which I will talk about in just a minute so the Prophet sallallahu says Muhammad he sends Muhammad bin Maslama radiallahu ta'ala anhu a sahabi who was from Medina and had some you know uh, connections and relations uh, from the pre-Islamic period with some of the Jewish tribes so he tells them to go and inform Banu Nadir that they are to evacuate the area where they live outside of Medina. Per the terms of the agreement and the treaty. Because the treaty had said, if anyone violates these terms, if anyone commits an act of aggression towards the other, they will have to evacuate the premises. They can no longer be trusted to be neighbors. So they have to evacuate the premises. So per the terms of the agreement, you have to go. He goes and he informs them that I come with a message from the Prophet ﷺ. And what's very fascinating, what's very fascinating is that when he goes and he informs them that you tried to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ, there was no denial on their part. That is also very fascinating, right? So that means that there is an acceptance of their guilt. And, he sa- and they immediately start taking aggressive military or defensive measures about how are we going to fight Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam now. Instead of like trying to, you know, if if this was some Muslim paranoia, if this was some trickery on the part of the Muslims which we know it's not, there would be some type of uh, conversation about, what are you talking about? We didn't do anything. How could you do this? Why are you saying this? There was none of that. There was immediately a taking of arms. And so, he goes and he informs them. At the same time you had another dynamic that had been playing out for quite some time that we've talked about previously and that was Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul and the group of the Munafiqun, the hypocrites. And and the enemy within that basically pretended, acted, claimed to be Muslim, but they were really constantly conspiring against the Prophet ﷺ. They were in cahoots. They were in you know cooperation with the Quraysh and Makkah, also constantly in contact with the Jewish tribes, and they were always looking for some type of you know a plan to be able to undercut the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. They send word to Banu Nadir, you ثبتونهم و المقام. So they send word to them similarly saying, listen, stand your ground, don't give in, fight Muhammad Wasallam if you have to, we are here for you. And again, we'll talk about that when we read through the surah at the end of our conversation here, we'll see that they were promising them that look, what's if you have to fight them, we'll fight with you. The worst case scenario, if they kick you out, they oust you, we will come with you. We will leave Medina with you. We are with you in this fight. So don't you give up and don't you give in. So because of their encouragement, and Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, just to again substantiate the fact, kind of recall something we've talked about in the past, he was the same individual who had come, who had initially promised to participate in the battle of Uhud with 300 of his people and then at the last minute ended up retreating and leaving with 300 of his people trying to leave the Muslim army high and dry and so that's the nature of this individual and he was promising that I have 2000 men at my disposal and I will fight by your side and we will eradicate the Muslims but of course when everything came to pass he was nowhere to be found So finally They issued them a warning They said you have 10 days To do whatever you need to do But you have to evacuate the premises You have to leave the territory Alright You have 10 days to make all arrangements And do whatever you need to do They sent word back we're not going anywhere We'll fight you if we have to So finally The Prophet ﷺ, Along with you know uh, the sahaba, the Prophet ﷺ, came out from the city of Medina and proceeded towards the area of Banu Nadir. Uh, ibn Ishaq, rahimullahu ta'ala, the famous historian and scholar of the seerah, he says that this was in the month of Rabi'ul-Awwal. And so the Prophet ﷺ put Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktum, the elderly blind sahabi who was also a Mu'addin of Medina, he put him in charge of, you know, uh, watching over the city of Medina and running the affairs of Medina, and the Prophet himself along with his companions proceeded out to Banu Nadir. When they arrived out to Banu Nadir, Banu Nadir, they had a very strategic setup. What they had was they had fields, so again, it was not very easy terrain for an army to kind of march through. They had huge fields. After that, they had, very, they had an orchard, if you will, like a date orchard that was very, very dense with date palms. So again, an army really couldn't walk through, couldn't march through. And it was just a huge area of just date palms. And after, right behind those date palms, they had a huge fort, like a castle, with big walls. So what they did was they retreated back into their fort, into their castle, if you will, locked up the doors, positioned themselves along the wall, and now what they had was they had this dense foliage, almost like a forest in front of them. After that, there were fields. And so as the Muslim armies approaching through the fields, which slowed them down and kind of started to scatter them and disperse them and break up the ranks, that made them prime targets to shoot arrows from up on the wall. And then once they would enter into the forest, the trees, that would further disperse and break up the ranks in the army. So that now they're like individual, they're separated. And again, they had a strategic vantage point from on top where they could shoot down arrows at them and kind of pick them off one after the other. So it was very, very treacherous. So the Prophet came to the edge of that, those fields, the farmland that they had. And they camped out there Kind of like a standoff. And Al Waqidi, he says that they stayed there for 15 days. They camped out there for 15 days. So there's a lot of restraint. There's a lot of restraint and a lot of patience being practiced on the part of the Prophet. And that whole 15 days, the message was sent to them that the previous offer still stands. We had an agreement, you violated the agreement very egregiously. You can still pack up your stuff and leave And no one will be harmed No one will be touched We're not interested in bloodshed here But if you don't You know, desist Then we will have to take measures And after 15 days finally The Prophet ﷺ They tried to proceed But then they were again met with that Whole strategic plan that Banu Nadir had Of shooting down arrows And kind of, you know uh, Starting to pick off You know, individuals from the army. So in this situation, the Prophet ﷺ took the necessary measures. And the necessary measures the Prophet ﷺ took was that the Prophet ﷺ ordered that the trees, that the, the, first of all, a lot of the fields should be raised and burned to level the land so that they could walk through it and then those trees should be chopped down, cut down and burned down so that it would clear a path for the army all the way up to the fort and that's what the Prophet ﷺ commanded the Sahaba to do at that time and that's exactly what was done now this is one of the key components uh, or one of the key talking points when it comes to the incidents of Banu Nadir because the criticism that was brought against the Prophet ﷺ by the munafiqoon, the hypocrites, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul and these individuals, Wadi'a, Malik, Suwayd, Da'is, these were all leaders of the hypocrites. They said that, you know, how are you doing this? They said, Ya Muhammad, قَدْ كُنْتَ تَنْهَى عَنِ الْفَسَادِ وَتُعِيبُهُ عَلَى مَنْ صَنَعَهُ he said that, you tell us not to cause chaos and wreak havoc on the earth. And you say people who do such things are bad people. فَمَا بالو قَطْعٍ وَتَحْرِيقِهَا So how are you tearing down these trees and burning these trees down? How are you going about and doing that? <clears throat> the Prophet did not respond to them because for anyone who was there, it was obvious. That this was not being done for sport. This was not being done for fun. This is not the classical scenario that we maybe kind of heard of or we've read about how different armies behave or even seen in movies or whatever it was. This was not like pillaging where they're just going around randomly burning villages to the ground with people inside of their homes. This is not that. In In fact, quite to the contrary, many of the historians like Ibn Ishaq and Bayhaqi and others have also documented the fact that the majority of the trees and the crops and the things in that area were not burned. Actually, afterwards, if you took a survey of that land of Banu Nadir, only a very small area of those trees were burned, and those were the ones that were in the path of the army. That was strategically set up by Banu Nadir as a defense protocol, as a defense strategy. So even this criticism that was made by the the munafiqoon, the hypocrites, and later on, much later on, the same criticism would be made by Orientalists, and today by Islamophobes online and individuals like that, is completely unfounded. Because the vast overwhelming majority of the lands were not burned. In fact, a very small area was burned, and that was the one that was directly in the path of the army. And again, the Prophet ﷺ didn't necessarily respond to them. The reason why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds within the Qur'an. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, inshallah. So finally the Prophet ﷺ, they arrive up to the… When they see that they've burned down the trees that were in the path, their defense kind of strategy is gone, and they've marched right up to the wall. At that time, Banu Nadir finally realized, this is not going the way that we planned. And so they surrendered, and they came down. And they told the Prophet Fine, we give in, we will leave. And even after all, everything that has transpired, two weeks of waiting it out. First giving them ten days, then them rejecting the offer, then two weeks of waiting it out, and giving them another opportunity, and then them still, you know, being defiant. After all that, the Prophet ﷺ still said, you have three days. You have three days, you can leave. Every individual, every individual, and it said that there were about 600 individuals, Every individual can have a camel with them, and they can take whatever they can load onto a camel right and in terms of what you can load onto a camel, think about it. like everyone gets you know to be able to take like um, like a container with them. Everyone can pack up a van individual each individual can pack up a van and take whatever they can take with them and they packed up all their personal belongings so much so that it 's also said that some of them even you know, uh, removed like fixtures from their homes. Some of them were seen even taking like uh, doors off of their homes, loading it onto the camels. Like they were able to take most of what they owned. The only thing that they were told they were not allowed to take were weapons for obvious reason. And then they were they left from there. And that's why when you read about the incident of Banu Nadir, most of what the Muslims recovered after Banu Nadir had left the area were basically the weapons. Most of what was recovered was weapons. There was not much left beyond that. And so this is the incident of Banu Nadir. And this is how basically they were dispersed. Now what happened to these individuals? The narration says that Uh, the majority of them actually went to the place of Khaybar. And they were welcomed in Khaybar with like a huge welcome because one of the leaders of Ibn Nadir, his name was Huyay bin Akhtab. He was considered like a very respectable individual amongst the Jewish tribes. And so they were welcomed in Khyber with a lot of, you know, parade and welcome and things like that. And they basically resided in Khaybar until the incident of Khaybar would occur. Because from Khaybar they would plot and plan their revenge against Medina and against the Muslims. But nevertheless, majority of them went to the place of Khaybar. Some of them are also documented to have split off from the group and gone to the area of the Levant, bilad sham And they basically settled over there. And so this uh, basically concluded the incident of Banu Nadir. A couple of things that I'll mention here about this particular incident is there were two individuals from Banu Nadir who became Muslim. <clears throat> One of them was the, indiv- was the nephew of the individual who had tried to go and drop the rock on the Prophet and assassinate him, um, Amr bin Jahash. His nephew whose name was Yamin ibn Umayr ibn Ka'b, he became Muslim. And the other individual was Abu Saad ibn Wahab. They both became Muslim. And because of them becoming Muslim The Prophet ﷺ said You are allowed to stay You are allowed to retain all your wealth And you are welcomed into our community And there's nothing held against you And so they ended up basically staying with uh, The Muslims at that time Another uh, interesting uh, kind of uh, anecdote or fact about this incident of Banu Nadir is that the during those uh, that time of Banu Nadir, while the siege was being laid against Banu Nadir, that is the time during which the ayah about the prohibition of wine of alcohol came down. Nazalat الخمر. القصة, that that is when the prohibition of wine and alcohol was revealed by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and that's a whole another conversation. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's a very fascinating uh, element of Islamic law and Islamic history about how wine and alcohol was prohibited by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. That it was done in three stages. This we call this a tadaruj fi right? tashrii that this is the gradual legislation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it displays and it shows the wisdom of Islamic law, and it also teaches us a very powerful element of tarbiyah and ta'aleen, that how do you go about really removing evil from people, that it is a process. That it is a process, and we should always remember that process and learn from that process. But basically, first initially, awareness was brought. Secondly, then a partial prohibition was instituted, that you cannot pray while you are under the influence. And ultimately, it was completely outlawed and prohibited uh, eventually. And that was during this time as well. The other thing that I wanted to mention here, is that there uh, is also uh, a narration… Uh, that talks about the aftermath of the incident of Banu Nadir that one of the individuals of Banu Qurayza, another Jewish tribe that would end up having a very um, serious incident with the Muslims that we are going to talk about later one of their individuals whose name is Amr bin Sa'd Al-Quradi he was one of the leaders of Banu Qurayza. And he passed by the area of Banu Nadir. Everyone had heard about what happened with Banu Nadid, and he went through there and he kind of, you know, visited that area, and he saw that it was completely abandoned. It had basically become a ghost town. It was completely abandoned. He goes back to the area of Banu Quraida, he finds most of the people worshipping in the temple, in the synagogue at that time, and what he does is, he basically goes and he blows the horn, he makes an announcement, the entire Banu Quraidah congregates and gathers together, and they ask him that, you know, where have you been? Um, because uh, this individual, Amr bin Saad, he was known to spend most of his time at the synagogue. He was considered to be a very devout worshiper, and they said, we haven't seen you here all day today. And he said that I have a very... Um, I have some very important news to share with you. He says, I have seen something today that we should learn a lesson from. Banu Nadir was always considered to be more powerful, more dominant, more well established than Banu Qurayza was. And he says, In spite of the fact that they were like the Big Brother tribe, I have seen. Their area, their neighborhoods, completely abandoned. It's like a ghost town out there. After what they used. And he said they left their homes and they've gone. And this was all because of their, you know, um, because of their deception that they practiced with the Muslims. And because of their combativeness and their defiance against the Muslims. So he said we should really learn a lesson from this. And we should... Correct our ways and we should really think about what we're doing. And he finally appeals to them very interestingly. He says that, Ya قَدْ رَأَيْتُمْ مَا رَأَيْتُمْ You know what the deal is. So he says, Come on, follow me, and we should believe in Muhammad and follow Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because he says we all know. That he is the Prophet. He basically refers back to two elderly, knowledgeable scholars of the Jews, of the Jews, of the Jewish tribes, and he says both of them had told us that this prophet was coming. And he fits every single description that they gave to us. So you know and I know that he's the Prophet. وَهُمَا They knew a lot more than we do. جَاءَنَا They told us that he was coming. وَأَمَرَانَا بِإِتِّبَاعِهِ They told us to follow him. جَاءَنَا مِن بَيْتِ الْمَقْدِسِ They spent extended time at al Maqdis in Jerusalem, studying ancient scripture. They knew what they were talking, min huma as-salam, And they died before the appearance of Muhammad Wasallam, before he became a prophet and he came to us. And they had written in their وَصِيَة, their bequest, their will, they had told us not only to follow him, but to give him their salams. That if they were alive, they would have followed him as well. You know that this is a fact, because he was a worshipper, right? He was, like, he, was, he was also like a, a, a somewhat of a scholar amongst the Jews. ثُمَّ mata عَلَى دِينِهِمَا But they died before Muhammad ﷺ came. وَدَفَّنَاهُمَا بِحَرَّتِنَا هَذِهِ And we buried them here in our land. فَأَسْكَتَ al فَلَمْ يتكلم منهم التكلم When he says this, when he makes this appeal to them, they all remain quiet and nobody speaks. ثُمَّ عَادَ then he says it all over again, trying to appeal to them. And he tells them, he says, look, this is not going to end well. You keep wanting to fight him. He is the Prophet of God. He has divine help and divine intervention. This is only going to end with war, with you losing, and you being ousted from your lands. So, one of the individuals, he speaks up and he says that, I have read in the Torah exactly what you were saying. I have read the description of Muhammad Wasallam within the... قَدْ قَرَأْتُ صِفَتَهُ فِي كِتَابِ فِي كِتَابِ torah Like I've read his description in the Torah. So, at that time, Qab ibn Asad, another one of the Jews, he says to this leader who spoke up, Zubayr ibn Ba'ta, who says I've read in the Torah his description? He says, Abdurrahman min itibahi." He says that why don't you believe in him? If you say you've read and it confirms everything you've read, why don't you believe in him? He says, "Anta I don't believe in him because of you." He says, "What do you mean? Right? What? what how am I present, preventing you?" He says that because he says to Kaab Ibn Asad, he says, O Ka'b ibn Asad, the leader of the Jews, he says that you are our leader. If you follow him, if you believe in him, we will follow and we will believe as well. But if you refuse to believe in him and follow him, we will also refuse. So Amr bin Saada, who had come with the news, who had seen the area of Banu Nadir, he turns to this individual, the leader, Ka'b, Ka'b ibn Asad, and he says that why do you not believe then? Right? Everyone is deferring to you now. I have spoken from the knowledge I have. Zubayr, the other scholar amongst our tribe, has also confirmed that he finds in the Torah to confirm believing in Muhammad Wasallam. But you're the leader. And everyone is deferring to you. So what's, why do you not believe? So he says مَا عِنْدِي فِي أَمْرِهِ إِلَّا ما He says that I don't have a good reason to give you. Why I don't believe? I have only one reason, but it's not a good reason. And that is مَا تَطِيبُ نَفْسِي أَنْ أصير I am a leader. I can't be a follower. I'm a leader, I can't be a follower. My nafs will not accept me deferring to someone else. Giving my authority to someone else. I can't do it. And this narration is found in Bayhaqi, in Dala'il-Nubuwa, it's also found in Ibn Ishaq, it's also found in Ibn Kathir, and finally that is how Banu Quraidha ultimately decided, okay fine, we're not gonna believe. We're gonna fight this out, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how things go. So this was another very interesting incident in the aftermath of uh, the incident of banu nadir one of the final things i wanted to share here uh, before we just take a look at the surah and we go through the surah the surah also talks about banu nadir was another incident where now we had the situation of what's called malul fay we know about malul ghanima malul ghanima is what is collected what is gathered what is acquired after combat after combat like badar uhud things like that. Malul Fay is where there's there is no combat, there's no fighting that occurs, but somehow an agreement happens. Right? There's an agreement and someone leaves. And so now you have weapons or property or goods that are acquired not as a result of combat, but they're surrendered. That is called malul fay. Now this is where the situation of malul fay came, and the surah, the Quran, in surah Al-Hashar, it speaks about this particular situation. But I'll just kind of explain it to you, and then we'll we'll go through the surah and see these things laid out within the surah. But the command from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and this is also a narration in the Sahihain of Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim from عُبْنُ khattab اللَّهُ anhu and that is is nadir mimma أَفَاءَ rasulihi mimma lam يُوجِ فِي الْمُسْلِمُونَ عَلَيْهِ بِخَيْلٍ ولا that the goods or the property of Banu Nadir is what was re- acquired as fate meaning that it was not the result of combat what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded in regards to that was فَكَانَتْ li it belongs to the state See, Malul Ghanima, when it is acquired, it is distributed amongst those who fought. And as we talked about uh, in the aftermath of the Battle of Badr from Surah Al Anfal, that a fifth of it, Khumus, 20% of it, a fifth of it, belongs to the state, which at that time is, of course, the Messenger, وسلم, and he uses it for the fuqarah, the masakin, the yatama, and the affairs of the state. Right, different state institutions like welfare, taking care of the poor, the needy, and so on and so forth. But malul الْفَيْدِ, that is not the result of combat, in its entirety is at the discretion of the state. It belongs to the state. And so now the state can basically utilize those goods for state-related affairs. And that's basically what the Prophet ﷺ did it, belonged to, it went to the discretion of the Prophet ﷺ The Prophet ﷺ took a small portion of it Utilizing it to provide a year's worth of sustenance um, You know, food, nourishment, provision For his family, for his homes And the rest of it was basically used in regards to um, Just the different needs of the city of Medina as a whole, the fuqara, the masakeen, the poor, the needy, the destitute, the orphans, the different institutions of the welfare institutions. Um, Similarly, it's kind of mentioned at that time that a couple of sahaba uh, from the tabi'un Uh, Excuse me, from the Ansar Excuse me, a couple of Sahaba from the Ansar Abu Dujana and others They came to the Prophet ﷺ And they basically were able to bring their needs That we find ourselves in very difficult financial circumstances We find ourselves in financial hardship And at that time the Prophet ﷺ also gave it to anyone Who was in this type of a difficult situation So it was given out in this particular manner the last thing that I'll mention about this incident of Banu Nadir, and this is almost kind of a, an academic point, um, uh, a kind of a technical detail, and then inshallah we'll go through the surah and take a look at the surah, um, surah number 59, is that there is some discussion amongst the historians and the scholars about when did this incident of Banu Nadir actually occur. Some of the historians, like Bayhaqi, Waqidi, and others, these are some of the early uh, individuals to document the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, they said that the incident of Banu Nadir happened prior to the battle of Uhud, Ghazwa Uhud. But Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Ibn Kathir, and the vast overwhelming majority of the scholars say no, it happened after the Battle of Uhud in the month of Rabi'ul Awal of the fourth year of Hijrah. And that is of course what makes sense as well because as I explained, this was all in the aftermath of the Battle of Uhud. That's just kind of the last technical point. In Ibn Kathir, تعالى, really provides a thorough explanation in this regard. And now um, to kind of move on to the final portion and the final part of it. And that is that the, at the conclusion of this incident of Banu Nadir the entirety of surah number 59 Surah Al-Hashar was revealed at this time The entirety of the surah was revealed and this is why Abdullah bin Abbas عنهما, used to refer to Surah Al-Hashar the gathering right? because it talks about the gathering of, individual, of people on the Day of Judgment He also used to refer to the surah as Surah Banin Nadir the surah about Banu Nadir. Alright, but this surah was revealed at this time. I'm just very briefly going to go through the surah. I'm just translating it to kind of, so you can see the surah talking about this entire incident. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, samawati wa ma ardi wahu al-Aziz al That everything in the heavens and the earth praises and glorifies Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, speaks of His perfection. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the dominant and the one who is wise and authoritative. الَّذي أَخْرَجَ مِنْ أَهْلِ من الْحَشْرِ that he, Allah, is the one who ousted those who disbelieved from the Ahlul Kitab from their homes at the first gathering. And Allah says, You did not think that they would leave. You assumed that they are never going to leave. And they thought that their fortresses would protect them from Allah but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came at them and undid all their plans from a place where they could in a way that they couldn't have never even imagined and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the fear and the intimidation of the Muslims within their hearts and those individuals they themselves destroyed their own homes and but that and also by their homes were destroyed by the hands of the believers meaning that of course they were overtaken by the believers but they before they left and this one the things i didn't mention that many of these individuals of banu nadir before they left their homes they actually burned down and tore down even some of their own homes so Allah says that look at this, they were the ones tearing down their own homes. So Allah said if you have any type of sense and any type of understanding, then learn a lesson from this. That anyone who wants to sit here and say, Oh, how terrible was their fate, that they had to leave their lands. If they hadn't left their lands, something much, much far worse would have happened to them. And of course, the punishment of the fire and the life of the hereafter awaits the if they don't change their ways. This was a consequence of the fact that they behaved defiantly and opposed Allah and His Messenger Wasallam. They're the ones who hatched the plot to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. الله الله Anyone who opposes Allah, then Allah is very harsh in dealing with them. That any trees that you cut down or any trees that you left in their place that was all by the permission and the license granted to you by Allah wa ta'ala. So don't tolerate anyone's criticism. Don't be ashamed of what you did. This was by the permission and the license granted to you by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That this wealth that was acquired is Malul الفيء, and it was not the consequence of combat, but rather Allah gave His messenger. Allah gives His messengers dominance over whomsoever He wills. That wealth or goods that are acquired through this process, non non-com, combat, right, they are solely and exclusively the property of Allah, at the disposal of Allah and His Messenger, and they are meant to be utilized for the family members of the Messenger, for the orphans, for the poor. For the destitute, the needy. Why? And this is a very powerful lesson that is contained therein uh, within this surah and within this institution of faith that is very relevant today. And Allah says, yakuna du kum, So that wealth does not remain perpetually just moving about amongst the wealthy, the powerful, the 1% of society. So that wealth does not remain solely in the hands, exchanging hands between the 1% of society. But this will serve the public institutions. This will serve the orphans, this will serve the poor, the widows, the needy, the destitute. Because that is an equitable economic and social system that Islam has established. وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوا And if the Messenger gives you something, then take it. وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنُهُ And The Messenger tells you not to do something, then don't do it. الله, إن اللَّهِ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ لِلْفُقَرَاءِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ الَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ وَأَمْوَالِهِمْ يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِدْوَانًا وَيَنْسُرُونَ اللَّهَ This wealth can also be used to provide some stability to those poor immigrants who had left their homes and their wealth and their properties behind them in Mecca and had come to the city of Medina. And even though they've lived in the city of Medina for three years, they still find themselves very financially unstable. This wealth can also be used to provide them some level of stability. Why? Because they made all those sacrifices solely seeking the pleasure of Allah. And they, Allah wa They did this to aid Allah and His Messenger, mean the, to strengthen the deen of Allah. الصادقون, they are truthful, sincere, honest people of integrity. And also, if you find similarly in a situation of financial instability, the residents of the city of Medina, who opened their homes and their hearts to their believing brothers and sisters, They love these people, their brothers and sisters who have left their homes and come to them. And they never ask for anything back in return. They have never kept track. They have never given receipts or invoices. Hey, I hosted your family in my home for six months, therefore this is how much rent you owe me, this is the grocery bill that you owe. They've never done that. They've never handed out any invoices. They give and they give and they give even when they don't have anything for themselves. النَّفْسِيَ When you can avoid the covetousness, the stinginess, the greed of the soul, then you will find yourself in a position of success. وَالَّذِينَ جَاءُوا مِن بَعْدِهِمْ And even those who came after them يقولونَ رَبَّنَا اغفر لنا الَّذِينَ And they say, O oh Allah, forgive us and our brothers who have preceded us in faith. And never allow there for there to be any hatred or resentment in our hearts for the people who believe. تَرَى and now, so that talks about what transpired and what to do with the wealth and how to exactly distribute it in the community in an equitable, fair, economic fashion. Now Allah speaks about the the negative elements that lives within the community <laughs> 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 that have you not taken a look at those individuals who are hypocrites they lie about what they really believe that they said to these friends of theirs, the disbelievers, the Ahlul Kitab, that if you are ousted, then we will leave with you. We will never join forces with Muhammad against you, with anyone, let alone Muhammad Wasallam. And if you fight, Then we will help you, we will fight by your side. And Allah says that God is a witness to the fact that they are liars, that they are nothing but liars. That if they are kicked out, they will not leave with them. And if they end up in a fight, they are not going to come and help them. Even if they initially started to come out to fight with them, then they would turn around and they would run from the battlefield. Because that's exactly what they did before in Uhud as well. There'd be nobody to help them. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has implanted the intimidation of you within their chests. <laughs> because these are people who don't understand the reality of things. <laughs> are who reality of things. <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't worry, these people will never come out and fight you in the open. Because at first for a while some of the Muslims were concerned, Banu Nadir is pretty huge and strong. And then they have Banu Quraidah. And what if Banu Quraidha comes to their aid as well? And what if some of the mushrikun come to their aid as well? This could become a real problem, a real situation for us. If they decide that they want to fight, Allah says, no, no, they will never fight you. They will never fight you. They're gonna go and hide in their forts, they will stand behind walls and throw rocks at you. They themselves can't get along with each other. You think that they're all together, but they hate each other. قُلُبُهُمْ Their hearts are disjointed because they don't have any intelligence. They lack thought, they lack intelligence. <laughs> because this they're they are just like the people that have dealt with a similar situation before them, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there is a very painful punishment reserved for them. And then Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says, <laughs> They are like shaitan. Shaytan <laughs> Shaitan tells the human being, disbelief Disbelieve in Allah. When a human being disbelieves in Allah Shaitan says in nibarium, I got nothing to do with this. Inni alamin I fear God. The Munafiqun are the same way. They keep telling the Yahood, fight Muhammad, fight Muhammad, fight Muhammad Sallallahu Wasallam. But the second they come out and fight the Munafiqun will be nowhere to be found. Don't, don't listen to these people. فَكَانَ عَاقِبَتَهُمَا أَنَّهُمَا فِي النَّارِ Both these people, like of the Ahlul Kitab and these Munafiqun, both their fates are the same. That they will both end up in the fire of hell. Khalidaini fiha For all of eternity. That is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the, the outcome and the recompense for people who live this type of life. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes, in a very powerful fashion, I'll go through this quickly, and then we'll end here. اللَّهَ اللَّهَ that all you who believe be conscious of God, and let every soul ponder and contemplate what it has set ahead for itself, sent ahead for itself, excuse me. And remember, continue to be conscious of God. Of Allah, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always informed about what you are doing. Do not be like those people who neglected God, Allah, in their lives. So Allah caused them to be neglectful towards their own souls and their own salvation. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed them to become self-destructive. Self-destructive. Because those are the people that are truly uh, sinful and defiant and disobedient. Layastawi Ashabul Jannah, people of hell and the people of paradise will never be equal. Are never the same. They don't operate in the same way. They don't think the same way. They don't see the world in the same way. Ashabul faizun. Because people of paradise are people who think about the outcome of their actions. Now Allah says how can you make sure that you don't make the same mistakes that these people are making And you can stay the course that focus on the book of Allah, the Qur'an. That if we would have sent down this Qur'an upon a mountain, you would have seen it crumble, fall to pieces from the fear and the greatness and the magnitude of Allah. These are examples that Allah says we give to people so that they contemplate and they continue to think and ponder them. And then finally Allah concludes in a very beautiful, powerful fashion that is the root of all of this. That is the solution to all of these issues and problems, and that is recognize who Allah is, and then build a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa taala according to His greatness. Who la ilaha He Allah is the one. There is absolutely, positively, no one, nothing worthy of worship except for Him. Alimul wa Shahada. He knows both the unseen and the seen. Huwar Rahmanur Rahim he is the abundantly merciful the constantly merciful Huwallahu ladhi la ilaha illahu Al Malikul Quddus As Salamul Mu'minul Muhayminul Azizul Jabbarun Mutakabbir that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is the king Allah is the sanctified Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is the granter of peace and security Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is the one who gives contentment and satisfaction. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who watches over and governs and protects. Allah is dominant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is powerful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control and greater than everything. Subhanallahi amma Yushrikun That Allah is above and beyond, perfect. Above and beyond what they ascribe and what they say about Allah. khaliqul bariul musawwir That He Allah is the one who created and then Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is the one who intricately designed and then ultimately fashioned perfectly everything. Lahul Asma ul Husna that Exclusively to him belong these most beautiful and excellent remarkable names. samawati wal And everything in the heavens and the earth continues to proclaim his greatness and his might and his purity. al-aziz al-hakim, And he is dominant and the one who possesses all wisdom and authority. And so you see the surah concluding in the way that it began. And of course we saw the different elements of the incident of Banu Nadir, kind of deconstructed within the surah from the confrontation, the ousting of those individuals, the military necessary measures that the Muslims took, that the Prophet ﷺ took, what was to be done with the wealth or the goods that were acquired afterwards, how to view the munafiqun and their presence within the Muslim community. And then ultimately, this is a very important lesson, Because this is the crux of our deen and religion. When these situations arrive, these are necessary measures that have to be taken. Very difficult, unfortunate, necessary measures. But the crux of our deen and religion comes back to our souls and the condition of our hearts and our relationship with Allah. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, through thick and thin, through good times and bad, through difficulty and ease, constantly maintain your relationship with the book of Allah. And never lose sight of who Allah is. And what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for you. And what He should mean to you. And always maintain your relationship with Allah. Whether you find yourself in a situation of peace, or you find yourself in a situation of war, وَاتَقُوا Allah. Live a life of God consciousness. Know who Allah is and conduct yourself accordingly. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahum bihamdik, nashad wa la ilaha illa anta, nasagfiruka wa natubu